This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by James Conlon, who's celebrating his 10th anniversary season as LA Opera's music director. Conlon is conducting LA Opera's production of Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio. He'll tell us why the title of this opera actually isn't quite accurate. How Mozart's music and dramatic themes from 235 years ago still resonate with us today, and how Mozart levels the social stratification in his operas. And we begin with a bit of news. In your 10th anniversary season, uh, it has just been announced that you have uh, extended your contract. So I wanted to say first, congratulations, and and we're looking forward to more uh, from you in the future here at LA Opera. Well, thank you, Brian. I'm happy to be here. I have been happy, and I'm happy to be there for another long period. This uh, Mozart opera is one that uh, perhaps audiences aren't as familiar with as you know, the big ones, Don Giovanni, uh, The Magic Flute, Figaro, and and others. What is special about this opera? Why are you so jazzed about this opera? Well, first of all, I think it is one of the big ones. Uh, all that means is that it is a little bit less often played, certainly. Now, it hasn't been played in a very long time here. I don't know exactly how long it's been, but long before my time, and that's long overdue. My feeling, first of all, is that the five operas... I include abduction with the magic flute and the three de Ponte operas should be in constant and regular rotation. Uh, I also feel that Idomeneo uh, should be there too. There is a production. It was done before my time, but it's been, that means it's more than 10 years. This is my 10th year. Uh, La Clemenza di Tito has never been done. And I think this is very important that that should come up in the coming years. So, Abduction from the Seraglio is up there with them. Now, why do I? Why does that seem self-evident to me? Probably because I became familiar with the abduction from the Seraglio when I was fourteen. I actually saw it before I ever saw or heard a magic flute. So for me, it's like fundamental. I, I can reconstruct my early years remembering what operas I saw of Mozart. The first one was Don Giovanni, the second one was The Marriage of Figaro, and the third one was The Abductions from Seraglio. So I did not know The Magic Flute. I did not know Cosi Fantute. I knew it all the way back then. And somewhere buried deeply in family archives is a picture of me fanning the Pasha Salem with this big palm leaf that I, I was in a production So as a little kid. So... I absorbed it back then. It's it, it is. It's silly to say one of my favorites. I have so many favorites. I don't know where to start. <laughs> but it is a marvelous opera. Very wonderful, also for families. Wonderful for children. It's very amusing, and along with being amusing, like as all other Mozart is, there's a sublime, universal message inside mm-hmm. contained in it. 
And you talk about that in uh, an article you've written that's uh, on the laopera.com website, uh, which I encourage reader uh, listeners to this podcast to uh, to read for themselves. It's it's excellent. And I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about what you have, have written there. Um, and first, maybe you could set the scene for us historically in Vienna uh, in regards to their relationship with the Turks historically. So give us some context for where this story then is is coming from very good well first of all the, the the story is basically it's a rescue opera like so many fairy tales and so many stories there's a beautiful young lady who's in love who is somehow captured or in captivity and in this particular case she's a spanish noblewoman her name is constanza which means fidelity and that's a very important very important point point. and she is loved by belmonte which is uh Beautiful Mountain or Schoenberg, whichever you feel like. He's, a, of course, a Spanish nobleman as well. Now, they were on a boat together with their servants, Pedrillo, and a, Eng a young English lady whose name, she's called Blanchin, which is like Blondie. Uh, and they were all shipwrecked. Pirates took them and sold them to a Turkish pasha. Belmonte was separated out. So he is now separated from... Constanza, and he wants to find her. And this is the story of his coming to this Turkish palace to try to rescue her. Now, when we get to that palace, and he gets to that palace, we discover the Pasha. He's called the Pasha Selim. And he is, at first, a frightening individual. We see him as the enemy. We see him as this man who is cruelly keeping this woman in captivity. But what becomes quickly evident is that he is deeply in love with her. And he does not want to her to he does not want to force her to love her as he can, as is his context of his society is his right. Uh, he wants her to return her love. And she says, basically, I can honor you, I will honor you, I cannot love you. Eventually, of course, Belmonte arrives and they attempt to take the ladies away and get on a boat. That's what the abduction is. A seraglio is a word that's not used commonly. It's a, it is uh, the part of a Turkish palace which is separated out. That's where the women live and sometimes the children. The word harem is more commonly used. That's an Arabic word. It is also the part of the building. As a loose term now, it means the actual women, but the term itself means that section. So the abduction from the seraglio is going to be, they're going to uh, not abduct these, it's not an abduction by force. It's so really, an, it's an elopement. Yeah. It's an elopement. It does not succeed, and that's very important. It does not succeed because uh, of the vigilance of another very important character. He is the overseer of the harem or the Seraglio, his name is Osmin, and he is a Turkish man. And he is a semi-comic uh, character, but he's also very serious. He is, he is in love with Blondie. And so what you have is you have three noble persons, Constanza and Belmonte, Spanish, and you have the Pasha. They compete for, the two men compete for the woman. You have three serving Person. So my Mozart was always very conscious of class distinctions. 
And so you have three serving persons. You have Pedrillo, servant of Belmonte, his girlfriend, Blonde, who is the servant of Constanza, and you have Osmin, who is a Turk, and he wants Blonde, and she does not want him. So you have, you see the parallels in all this. The abduction fails, so one really shouldn't call the opera the abduction of Seraglio because it doesn't happen. What happens is they are caught. The Pasha discovers that Belmonte is the son of his worst enemy, and he has the opportunity now to take vengeance on that father by, of course, executing the son and Constanza, and that's what he determines to do. They are left on stage. They have a, an epiphany that they are ready to die together in, in a state of love. A little bit like Wagner, Liebestod. It's all there in, in Mozart. And then the big surprise and the most significant part, I, I hate to tell everybody what it is because you know how this right. But the, uh, the story has to end happily because it's, it's a, it is a comedy. And so if, it were to, if they were to be executed, it would be a tragedy melodrama. That's for the 19th century. This is 18th century. It ends well. The Pasha emerges and says, basically, it is nobler to forgive than to take vengeance. So he gives everybody their freedom. He says, return to your father and tell him that rather to return a bad act with a bad act, I restore his son to him. Why is this important? This is important because the Turks were the enemies for centuries to, well, what is now Austria, but the Austrian-Hungarian Empire uh, and Vienna. And, and the, the Ottoman Empire actually came right up to the border of what is now Vienna. So the Viennese, which, was a, which is an international city, you have lots of immigration from all over, are very conscious of Turkey or Turks as an enemy. And consequently, in their, in their theater, they either portray them as devils or as comic figures. So we have a little bit of both in this. But the surprise and the profound message that Mozart is leaving here, what we see is that the man presumed to be a terrible savage is in fact nobler, or at least as noble, if not more noble, than the characters. And it comes from an unexpected it comes from an unexpected source. And this plays right in what part of the relevance, great relevance it has at this time, is that as a, as a, let's say, a country, Vienna, that is based on, basically on the Christian, uh, Christian tradition, but at least Judeo Christian tradition, considers Muslims as others. And here it is the Muslim, the Pasha, who has this enlightened, beautiful vision of the universe, and he teaches us. That's Mozart's point. I don't see any relevance whatsoever in 2017. <laughs> well, it's, of course, very relevant. Yeah. Um, and what an amazing um, power that Mozart has to um, sort of access this idea that would have most likely been really controversial in society at, at his time. Um, but to say, you know, the people that we think are our enemies may not all of them be our enemies simply because of who they are. That's correct. And Mozart, of course, always provoked. The Marriage of Figaro was very provocative. That was about revolution, 
basically. So he was uh, he always defended the serving class, the working class. He always defended the women uh, in an age when women were considered second class citizens. He was uh, his genius is unfathomable. That aside from writing perfect music, he had an instinct for the theater and for drama, but also for the profound. This is not a profound libretto. It's not a profound text. He has made it profound through his music. How does he do that? How do you take text that's, you know, just kind of okay and through music, how do you elevate the text? Well, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be Mozart (laughs) and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. (laughs) I'd be doing that. There is no explanation to uh, geniuses of that level able to... uh, First of all, he wrote perfect music. And not just operas, he wrote perfect piano concertos and symphonies and chamber music. And He wrote perfect music. And it's completely accessible music. And part of his genius is that anybody, people listening to me right now on this podcast, who have never heard a note of this opera or never heard any music, can come to Mozart and immediately respond to him. There's no barrier between Mozart and any human being which you can't say for all composers. Some composers, you have to do a certain amount of work to get there, not Mozart. And yet, though it is as simple and straightforward and melodic and rhythmic in a way that can appeal to everybody, to a baby, to a child, you know how much we've talked about Mozart and the Mozart effect and all that. All that, I believe, is true. At the same time, he is a, a profundity that makes everybody think about what he is saying and a profundity that makes musicians who have been playing his music all their lives never lose their fascination with this man. Mm-hmm. What was his role in the sort of public discourse of the Enlightenment and, and the ideals? Was he involved at all in philosophical discussions or was his role exclusively an artistic role? Well. His whole being and nature was of a creator. But he was a thinking person and very concerned with moral issues, very concerned with religious issues, very concerned with, with uh, societal issues. He became a Freemason. And he was just getting interested around the time of the abduction. But, I mean, he wasn't as, by the end of his life, he was very, very involved with that. But that caused a contradiction for him because he was, he was born a Roman Catholic and brought up in that tradition and was a believer, but as well. But the Masons had another take on everything, and there was tension between the Catholic Church and the Masons, although I think that the, the, the tension was from the Roman Catholic Church because they didn't want to accept the Masons, uh, the freedom of the Masons. So Mozart became, and he was very, he was very concerned with moral issues. No, he, I mean, he wasn't a politician. He wasn't a philosopher in the sense that he wrote or that he gave speeches or that he had a public persona. His his public persona was as uh, first as a virtuoso and as a as a composer. And the miracle is that he was able to integrate all these ideas that were coming out of the French Enlightenment, the Enlightenment in general, marry them to a lot of the Masonic ideas and put them all together in a very interesting way. Was any news of what was going on at this time um, in the American Revolution? Was that coming across um, the the Atlantic to as far as Vienna or, or was that 
news sort of far off and unknown? Well, we're already 10 years after the American Revolution, but the American Revolution was not lost, first of all, on the French. And this is written on the eve of the French Revolution. It hadn't happened yet. It was about to happen. And that, of course, was very upsetting to the court, any court, all courts, including uh, the Kaiser in, in Vienna. Now, the Kaiser, the, the reason Mozart wrote this opera is the Kaiser was looking for, he was saying, you know, all operas are Italian. Italian, they're in Italian, Italian saying, I want German opera. Mozart saw an opportunity for himself. It was as simple as that. And he took it. Mozart had, he had written in German before, but he had never written really a German opera. Now, by the way, this has another name. It's called Zingspiel. Well, that means, uh, it's a German word, means singing and playing. It means there are dialogues. So there's spoken dialogue. Now, what are we doing in this production? We're singing it in German. Of course, there are always certain titles, so our public can always follow. All of that, but we're speaking the dialogue. We have trans, you know, we've translated and transformed the dialogue to uh, a little bit more to fit fit the times. Mm-hmm. This has become a practice uh, outside of Germany, where you can <laughs> perform the original in German. Uh, this is becoming practice a little, a little more common these days to do this. Mm-hmm. So that was the form, and M- Mozart could adapt to anything, and so he did. But in, even in the adaptation. Uh, he borrowed a great deal from the Italian opera, so it is an opera. There are arias, and you know everybody knows the Queen of the Night. Well, Constanza has have arias that are like the Queen of the Night. They are just as difficult, and she's you know very impressive role to see. You wrote about um, sort of the fusion of opera buffa and opera seria in this work. How does that? Um, how do those two worlds come together? Well, the worlds were. Serious opera, as Seria suggests, and buffa, which means comedy opera. So there were very clear genres, and you wrote uh, you wrote a, a comic opera, or you wrote a serious opera. The serious opera was usually about figures from the Roman Empire or the Greeks. They were not allowed to write about biblical, for the most part, biblical characters or religious themes. So you see a lot of the antiquity there. Uh, you may see mythology there. But you, when it was serious, it was serious, period. And when it was comic, it was comic. But Mozart was too profound just to make silly stuff happen. He knew how to make everybody laugh and smile. But at the same time, he humanized the, he humanized the characters so that they are not stick figures. They are all rich personalities with uh, complexity. And another thing he did was the, well, the stratification of society. Usually you have two love, love stories, as you do in this opera. You have a noble love. That's meant to be serious love, deep love, profound love. And then you have the serving class, and they're supposed to have sort of superficial love. They bicker with each other, and they, you know, take care of practical things together. But they, you don't sense there's this profound love. Well, that's unfair. It's not just unfair. It's inaccurate. Mozart identified himself, but he, it wasn't that he came out and sermonized about it. He made those servant characters have deep, deeper personalities. And we're going to see this enormously in the Marriage of Figaro, or Figaro and Susanna, who are the working class. They are, they are profound characters, as well as the noble characters are shown to have their flaws. 
So he was breaking this down. Mm-hmm. As he's doing this and as he's challenging the establishment and also in his in his um, you know treatment of uh, of the Turks in this piece, um, was any of that you know more than just a thing that Mozart did? Was it you know sort of a risk? Was it sort of a calculated you know I'm gonna I'm gonna make people feel uncomfortable? Was there ever sort of a a risk of like you know maybe I've gone too far with with my pointing out the flaws in nobility or pointing out how Turks can be good? You know he did it in such a way that I don't think anybody got offended. There uh, certainly I didn't understand that when I was fourteen. All I saw was this beautiful music, beautiful people, and the, and this Pasha, whom I was afraid of, first comes out, and it's a happy ending, and he forgives everybody, everybody leaves happy. That's about the level on which most people took it. I know that you're a proponent of uh, appreciating a work of art simply on its own merits, um, and, and I'm with you on that. Um, but also, given what you've written on LAOpera.com and our conversation here, you know, it just feels like uh, there's so much more immediacy right now um, with this work from 1782 to now 2017 with all sorts of, um, you know, whatever societal anxieties we have. Um, we're having big conversations right now in in terms of um you know, racism and in terms of xenophobia and welcoming refugees versus not welcoming refugees. How do you feel about drawing some of those lines with this piece? Well, first of all, I do agree, absolutely. The work of art is the work of art. It just so happens that works of art, great, really great masterpieces, somehow always have relevance to something that's going on. The abduction from the Seraglio looks at this question of our society who demonizes another people. And the lesson that comes back is maybe the other people not are just human beings. Maybe they have a corner of wisdom or uh, goodness in them that we don't have and that we have to ask ourselves those questions. Uh, so that's clearly the difference you know, between you know, Europe and Turkey in this in the story. Now, also the Pasha is an interesting because he's not he is not Turkish. He actually comes from what is now Algeria, and he was thrown out by a Spanish invasion. So he had to go from Al. So he's an immigrant. Now he's an immigrant on a high level, but he went from Algeria back to Turkey. So we're talking about immigration in its many forms. So that just touched on. But I think most of all. It's the question of learning from, from societies and from religions that are not yours or mine. And I think that's very important. How did Mozart know that? How did he know all the things he knew? He seemed to intuitively, intuitively felt that. James Conlon is celebrating his 10th anniversary season as music director of Los Angeles Opera. Conlon conducts the company's current production of Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio. Six performances January 28th through February 19th at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. For more information, visit laopera.com. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrenson. <laughs>